Well, good morning, everyone. It is my pleasure to be here with you. We're going to be in the book of 2 Peter, 2 Peter 3. We as a church have been walking through the book of 2 Peter this summer. The book of 2 Peter is really written so that you would know, so that you would have confirmed for you the calling that God has put on you um, when you became a Christian. So what 2 Peter is all about, that, that we would make sure our, our calling and election, as it says in chapter 1, verse 10. And the ultimate ground for the, the assurance that Christians can have is the promises of God. The precious and very great promises because God has made these promises to us. We belong to him and that God's promises, nothing can revoke them from us. Nothing can take them from us, but we are his because he said we're his. The secondary ground for assurance is the way that those promises work their way out in our life. That if we, if we truly believe that God's promises, that he is for us and he's not against us, that as his people, it should impact the way that we live. And so we can see as we're growing more and more, as we're, we're progressing in holiness, we can see that God, that our faith is genuine and our faith is real. And what, the question that we dealt with at the end of chapter 1 was, well, where do those precious promises come from? Where can I find those promises? And we saw that the answer to that is actually in his, in his word, that uh, his word is inspired and inerrant. And we made this point, it's worth making again, that God wants you to have assurance so much. God wants you to have assurance so much that he put it in his inspired, inerrant word. That, that for God, it is so important that you and I would know that we are his. That he laid it out from, from eternity past to eternity future in his scriptures. We, we contrasted that with the way of false teachers in chapter 2. The way of false teachers, they promise that there's a freedom. They, they promise that there is freedom to be had, but that freedom can only lead to slavery. That, that to follow and to give into the freedom of sin will only lead us into slavery. On the other hand, to be a slave of Christ, to be his servant, to belong to him, to, to give our lives to serve him, can only bring freedom. And so there's a slavery, there's a freedom that enslaves, but there's also a slavery that frees. And we saw last week at the beginning of chapter 3 that, that God promises that, he, that there's going to be a day that he comes, that he um, exposes all the wicked deeds of this earth and he judges them. And um, some of you are glad you weren't there for that. But it's actually a really, really positive passage. Because that passage tells us that God delays his judgment so that he can save all of his bride, so that he can save all of his people. And then we get to this very last, these last words, the last things to our knowledge that Peter ever wrote before um, he died, that summarizes all of this and ties all of this together. And so it's worth taking some time and reflecting on these last words of Peter in 2 Peter 3, verses 14 through 18 says this, Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you, according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, 
which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do in the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this first beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the error of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. Father in heaven, one more time, we ask that you would plant these promises on our heart, that we would turn neither to the right nor to the left, but that we would rest assured in your will for our lives, that we would rest assured in your love for us, that we would rest assured in your forgiveness. It's in the name of your Son that we pray. Amen. Well, I've been here as the pastor of this church now for almost a year, so I feel like there's no real reason to hide anymore. I feel like you guys probably already know, but I'm a little bit of a nerd. That's my confession this morning. Um, None of you are surprised. One of my favorite books, and half of you are going to love this, and the other half of you are just going to groan, but that's okay, is Lord of the Rings. I love Lord of the Rings. See, I can see which ones are groaning. Yeah, it's okay. Um, Love Lord of the Rings, and one of the most, not just because, although this plays into it, because it's a treasure trove of sermon illustrations, but also because in Lord of the Rings, um, there's this... like J.R. Tolkien just understood psychology and human nature and, and understood um, certain things about Christian worldview that are just so helpfully told. And, and one of the things that I think is most interesting is the character Gollum. And some of you will say, but his, act, his actual name is Schmeagel. Fair enough. But Gollum, see, I just tested to see who knew. Uh, Gollum in Lord of the Rings um, is this, if you've never seen it or read it or you're yeah, anyways, um, Golem is this character who is um, barely, barely a sentient being, that he seems like he's an animal, and he seems like he's driven by, by his own instinct and driven by his own uh, desire, and he just, he, he seems like he's bitter and hatred, and his life is, in, is enslaved to his desire for the ring of power. And, and he just seems like he's He's almost an animal. He just, he just seems like he's so, so strange and he's so insatiable. But there, there's this point in the books where, where one of the characters says, you know, actually, he used to be a lot like you. But he's actually not that different than you could be. See, what Jared Tolkien understood is that who we are today is the result of choices that we have made in the past. That the result of choices that we've made in the past. And sometimes one choice after another, after another, after another, leads us down the way of folly until we are just golem living in a cave, can't see, and just trying to hunt fish out of the puddles in the rock. And then if we pursue godliness, that our lives lead to another result. See, this passage that we've talked about, that we're talking about today, is built on the contrast between the unstable and the stable. You see that in verse 16. He says, which the ignorant and the unstable. And then you'll see it again down in verse 17. He said, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability. That there's this, there's this contrast that is built in, that there, there's, there's the stable and the unstable. 
that this passage is, is built on trying to tell us to pursue the way of stability, not to pursue the way of instability. Because this passage says much the same thing that you and I, that we will be the people that are the result of the decisions that we made. And so we can walk the way of folly, we can walk the way of instability, we can, and it leads in one place. Or we can walk the way of holiness, we can walk the way of sanctification, we can walk the way of the Lord, and it leads to another. So what I want to do today is I want to, I want to contrast these two ways, the, the way of instability and the way of stability. And the way I want to do this is I'm going to tell you at first how to be unstable. Some of you think I probably shouldn't do that, but that's okay. We're going to say how to be unstable and then how to be stable. How to be unstable, how to be stable. Those are the two, the two headings this morning, how to be unstable. And um, the, the second one will be just a bit longer than the first one, just to, to warn you if you got a symmetrical mind. I'm sorry. I tried to make them even, but couldn't do it this morning. All right. So how, do, how can I be an unstable person um, is, is the question we're going to answer first. And here's the first way. Here's the first way. Um, that you ignore the patience of the Lord. That you ignore the patience of the Lord. What we see in verse 15 is that one of the admonitions that Peter gives is that we would count the patience of the Lord as salvation. But the the unstable person, the person that Peter is concerned that we don't turn into, ignores the patience of the Lord that leads to salvation. We saw this last week in in chapter 3, verse 9, where it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill His promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. See, the biblical worldview tells us that we live in a universe and we live in a world in which God's bringing all things to a head, in which all things are building towards the climax and the consummation. And we're told that, that God actually delays that climax, delays that consummation so that all his people can come in. But the foolish thing to do, the unstable thing to do, is to ignore that. It's to ignore that God is trying to save us. It's to ignore that there is an end that is in mind. It's to ignore the, the way of, uh, it's to ignore the fact that our time here on earth is limited. Uh, the Apostle Paul says it this way in Romans. Do you presume on the riches of his kindness and forbearance and patience, not knowing that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? But because of your hard and impenitent heart, you are storing up wrath for yourself on the day when God's righteous judgment will be revealed. The, the unstable person, the foolish person, the scoffing person in the words of Second Peter is somebody who ignores the patience of God who ignores that God is, is holding back judgment, holding back the full extent in order that all his people can come in. It's the first way to be um, unstable. The second way is this, that we would twist the scriptures to our own understanding. We talked about this in the last, in chapter 2. The, the way of the false teachers that Peter is confronting is the, the way of those who cannot help but follow after their own desires. 
that everything they do is motivated by their own desires, everything they do is lawlessness, and that they twist the scriptures to their own understanding. And, and Paul, Peter's honest. He says, our beloved brother Paul, who you know, sometimes he says some things that are hard to understand. I get it. And he says, the, un, the ignorant and the unstable twist those things, twist the things that are difficult to understand in Scripture to their own destruction. So let me give you an a, example of, of how this kind of instability might twist Scriptures. If you read the Old Testament, one of the, the two themes that you see that eventually meet in the person of Christ is that God is holy and cannot dismiss sin, but that God is also love, and he's quick to show forgiveness. He's quick to... And so if you... That, that can be hard to square those two things, right? That God... Is God holy or is God loving? The answer is yes. Those, those two things can be hard to, to square sometimes, to hold intention, to understand how they relate to one another. And, and the unstable person, the person that, that Peter is talking about, might say, well, God is holy, so he's not going to forgive you for that thing that you did. He's not going to forgive you for that way that you talk to your kid. He's not going to forgive you. So you better just be the best little person that you can be. You be the best Pharisee that you can be. And you make sure you have a resume of righteousness that you can show off to anybody who asks. Or the unstable person might say, well, God's a God of love. So anything flies. So what does it matter if I follow after my own desire? What does it matter if I steal something that doesn't belong to me, if I'm controlled by greed? What does it matter? God will always forgive. God will always love. God has, there's no consequences. And it's easy sometimes to to take the things in Scripture that we like and to leave the things that might confront us, that might sand us down for another day. But that's the way of instability. That's the way of madness. The the unstable person twists things that are hard to understand in Scripture to their own destruction. The the unstable person, the unstable person uses the Scripture to justify their own behavior. And in doing so, they go to their own destruction. This is the second way to be unstable. Here's the third to be driven by impulse and lack of restraint and lawlessness. Of course, we saw this in chapter 2, and this is all over chapter 2. So it's in chapter 2, verse 2. says that many will follow their sensuality, and because of them the way of truth will be blasphemed. It says in chapter 2, verse 3, in their greed, they will exploit you with false words. It says it in in chapter 2, verse 8, where it says that their lawless deeds were those in Sodom and Gomorrah. It says in chapter 10, that, they, that those who are lawless indulge in the lust of defiling passion and despise authority. It says in chapter 2, verse, uh, verse 16, that he was re- rebuked for his own transgression, the breaking of the law. This is these people that it says in verse 19 that they promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person to that, he is enslaved. Do you understand that the chapter 2 describes this as people who are controlled by their desire, who, who are insatiable in their greed? Do you understand that, that the way of instability, the way of folly, the way of foolishness is to never tell myself no? It's to never have control over myself. 
It's to, it's to allow myself to follow after whatever latest goal, whatever latest fad, whatever, whatever tickles my ears and, and raises my fancy. That's, that's the way of folly. The foolish person never tells himself no. He lives an undisciplined life. He lacks control. He lacks the, the, the ability to deny himself. That's the way of instability. If you want to be an unstable person, which hopefully you don't, if you want to be an unstable person, just never tell yourself no. <laughs> never say, I'm not, going to, I'm not going to deny myself. That's the that's second way to be, whatever, to be unstable. Another way to be unstable is to ignore your own errors. To ignore your own errors. It says, take care that you're not carried away with the error of lawless people. So a, a, a way to be unstable is when something doesn't fit into your preconceived notion of the way the world should work, you just kind of shut it out. You just don't really pay attention to it. You don't, you don't really try to make sense of it. You're not willing to change when you see that. You're not willing to be persuaded that you might be wrong. You're hardened and fixed in your set mentality. That's the way of instability. It's a way of madness. It's a way to shipwreck yourself. If nobody has permission to tell you, I think you're off here, that's the way to run yourself into an iceberg. It's foolishness. And finally, one, one more way to be unstable. To ignore or to neglect or to distort the end of folly. In other words, to ignore their own destruction. See, this kind of foolishness, this kind of folly cannot end in anything else but the grave. Peter's already said this in verse 1. He says they, they secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. That, that the way of folly is the way that says there are no consequences for our actions. There's, there's no end which, which I will, there's no brick wall which the way that I'm running will hit. There's, there's nothing that will happen. That, that, the way of folly is the way that says I'm going to be guided by my own impulses. I'm going to be guided by my own desires. I'm going to keep my eye down. I'm just going to follow my stomach. I'm just going to follow my belly. And I'm going to ignore that there's a big sinkhole in the road up ahead. And I'm going to run straight into it. That's the way of folly. It's a way of instability. It's a way of foolishness. If you, if you want to be an unstable person, if you, if you want to be a person who's carried away by instability, ignore the end of your, of your actions. We, we live in a world which separates cause from effect and consequence from action and judgment from sin. And that's the way of instability. It's the way of the world which is 
disintegrating and dissolving. It's the way of a world that cannot stand, that cannot survive. It's the way of madness. That's how to be unstable. Let me tell you how to be a stable person. Let me tell you about sacred stability. How, how can you be stable? How can you avoid these things, and how can you be stable? Well, first, let me say this. I think it's a good idea to define what we mean by stability. It's a good idea to define what we mean by stability. When, when he says in verse 17, not to lose your own stability, it's a good question to ask, what are we talking about? And I, I, the best understanding I have of Second Peter is that he's talking about assurance, He's talking about not falling away from your assurance. And, and I would also add to that the fruits of assurance. So just as he says in verse 10, therefore brothers, uh, chapter 1, verse 10, sorry, therefore brothers be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election, that, to, to have assurance, to have confirmation, to have confidence that you are one of God's people and God's children. It, in chapter 3, when he says not to lose your stability, he's saying not to lose your sense of belonging, uh, of having a place, of having been found in Christ. So how, how can you do that? Let me give you a handful of, of ways to do that. First, he says, Therefore, beloved, since you're waiting for these, be diligent. Be diligent. Work hard. Expend effort. We, we sometimes think of the Christian life as something that doesn't really require effort. Uh, and that's just not true. This is why chapter 1 in verse 5 said, For this very reason, make every effort to supplement. And why in chapter 1 verse 10 it says, Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. Dear Christians, to stays stable in Christ takes effort and work. It takes labor. It takes, it takes effort to, to retain our stability in Christ. That if we, if we try to tell ourselves that I'm saved and therefore nothing else in my life matters after this point, and I can go off and do whatever, not only is that a misunderstanding of what salvation is and what assurance is, but it can't last. That kind of assurance is false and it will not carry you through a dark storm. That kind of assurance will not support you when everything else is falling down on top of you. That kind of assurance will not give you light in the tunnel. Christians, that, that to keep your stability requires effort. You know, a shark, when a shark moves, the reason that a shark is always moving is because if it stops moving, it will sink. So the same for us Christians. If we are not expending effort, if we're not working, then our sense of our assurance will fade over time and it will dissolve. And the benefits and the fruit and the joy that come from being known and being found in Christ will fade away. Be diligent. It's the first thing. Second thing is this, to be found by him. So be diligent to be found. Now, for some of us, maybe, sometimes for me, the idea of being found by Christ is not something that brings joy. Oftentimes I feel like Adam in the garden, 
a hiding in the bushes when Christ comes. But Scripture says we should be diligent to be found by Him, that we, we want Him to find us, that we're not ashamed, we're not afraid when He returns. You know, in Matthew 25, Jesus tells this parable about these three servants who have a master who goes far away, and he goes into a far country working on, uh, for, uh, to inherit some property. And so he tells, he gives to one of his servants 10 talents. It's a unit of, of money. And he tells him to make use of it. And he gives to another five talents, tells him to make use of it. And so he gives to the third one talent. And of course, the one who has just one talent, when he returns, tells, tells the master, he says, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here, here you have what is yours. But his man, master answered him, you wicked and slothful servant. You knew that I reap where I have not sown and gather where I scattered no seed. And you ought to have invested my money with the bankers. And at my coming, I should have received what was my own with interest. And the, the Lord rebukes the, the one who, who was found to, be slave, uh, found to be lazy and slothful. But on the other hand, for the one who had the ten talents and the five talents. He comes back and he sees that he has made use of those talents. And he says to him, well done, good and faithful servant. Well done, good and faithful servant. Christian, you should be diligent to hear those words from your Lord upon his return. To hear Jesus say to you, well done, good and faithful servant. You should be diligent and make effort that you would hear the Lord approve. You should be doing things that you know that he approves of so that you can hear him say, well done, good and faithful servant. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. And that phrase, those four words, have caused me no small amount of consternation this week. That they are, um, there's a lot in here, we talked about this at our small group last week, that the question is, what does he mean by without spot or blemish? What does he mean by that? See, in 1 Peter 1, 9, that 119, that's um, Peter's first letter, he says, he said that, the blood of Christ is like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. Same words that purchases us from our futile ways. So when he says, what, is it, what, what does it mean? What does it mean to be found by him without blemish or spot? Is he talking about those who are covered by the blemishless and spotless blood of Christ? What, is that word, what does those words mean? What is he trying to communicate and indicate to us? Or... Does he mean it in the sense of James 1.27, which says that true and undefiled or spotless religion is this? Does he mean that he wants us to come to return and to be found as those who are, who are practicing true and spotless religion? That we're, we're, in other words, we're morally pure, we're holy. Well, what is this phrase talking about? And I just don't think these two ideas can be separated in the mind of Peter. Here's what I mean. In chapter 1, in chapter 1, he said this, Make every effort 
to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they keep you from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. What is he saying? He's saying grow as a Christian. Make effort to grow and mature and to add to your knowledge and and to grow in brotherly affection and to grow in love and to grow in godliness. Sounds a lot like he's saying, make sure when Christ comes you back, he finds you holy. But then you read the next verse. Chapter 1, verse 9, he says, For whoever lacks these qualities is so nearsighted that he is blind having forgotten that he was cleansed from his former sins. And there it seems like he's saying, be found, be diligent in Christ as one who's forgiven. So is he talking about the forgiveness that we have or the the fruits of the Spirit? Is he talking about growing in Christ? And I would say the answer is yes. That when Christ returns, we should be found as those who have faith in Christ and are covered by the spotless, blemishless, blameless love of God in Christ. That we have been ransomed from our futile ways, that we, are, we have been washed by the blood, that we are uh, white as snow in his eyes. And we should be like those who are lo- working hard, who are laboring hard, who are being earnest and diligent, that we would look like the Savior who bought us that we would reflect him more and more with each passing day. That yes, salvation starts with forgiveness and we are saved and justified only ever by faith in Christ. But that salvation turns into sanctification. That salvation produces fruit in us. And that salvation goes to work in us because God promised that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. So when Peter says in chapter 3, Be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. What he is saying is be diligent to be found as one who's put his faith in Christ and that faith is producing fruit. Who's been washed by the blood of Christ and who's beginning to look like Christ. Who was ransomed with the spotless and blemishless Lamb of God and himself is becoming spotless and blemishless. It's to that person that Jesus says, well done good and faithful servant. Well done. Well done. And then he uses this phrase. He says, and at peace. And at peace. Now, this is probably not going to be a surprise to you knowing Peter in the way that he is in the gospel, but this is really bad grammar in the Greek your, your English kind of cleans it up so it looks like proper, but in the Greek, it's just not very good grammar, and you figure it makes sense knowing Peter in the, in the gospel. So the question is, what is that phrase? It kind of is hanging off there. It doesn't really seem to make much sense. What is he talking about? I believe when he's using peace, he's talking about our horizontal relationships. So when he says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish, that's our horizontal, that, that, that we want to be seen by God as those who are producing fruit. And when he says at peace, he's referring to our horizontal relationship. That, in other words, that we are part of the beloved. And you'll notice he uses that word there in verse 14 and again down in verse 17. It's the same word that he used in verse 1. When he says, I'm writing to you, beloved. 
It's the same word that he used in verse 8. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved. It's the idea of what he says in verse 11. What sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Let me put it this way. When Christ returns, when he descends, and when we meet him, he does not want to find us straying from the flock. He does not want to find us isolated and distant from other Christians. He doesn't want to find a Christian without a church. When Christ returns, he says, well done, good and faithful servant, to those who are serving Christ by serving others, to those who are part of the beloved, to those who are with the church. Do you understand Christianity is a team sport. Christianity, yes, it takes personal effort. Yes, it takes hard work. Yes, you cannot rest in your laurels, but that happens when you're part of a team, when, when you're part of the church, when you're a member of God's people. Uh, when I was in junior high, I really wanted to join the wrestling team because then I if I lost, it would be my fault, not all the other people on the football team's fault. But I, so I joined the wrestling team, and then I found out that's a wrestling team, that what you do still affects the life of the other people. And many of us, we, we're Christians, and we think, I, I just want to be an individual person to get my score up on the scoreboard. But your score still affects those around you. That when Christ saved you, he saved you to be part of a church. That... That it's part of it's God's will that we would be found at peace with each other and walking with each other and doing life together, not doing life on our own. That when God says, Well done, good and faithful servant, it's with the understanding that we will be found together, that we'll be waiting as one. They'll be waiting as a church. And if you're, if you're not part of a church this morning, can I encourage you? We would love to have you press in deeper here at Grace. We would love to have you press in deeper. We'd love to invite you to our small groups and Bible studies and to pursue membership. And if you want to know more what that's like, please talk to me afterwards or come on down and hear Owen's presentation. That's a great way to start. When Christ returns, he wants to find us waiting for him together. Of course, there, there, maybe there's a sense, maybe some of us have some back history in our background, and we want to say, well, what about those who are hurt? What, what about some hurt that we have from the church? And I, I so understand that. If anyone understands church hurt, it's pastor. But I would just tell you, I am glad that the church is not full of perfect people, because then I would not be welcome. And neither would any of you. So when you get people who are imperfect together in a room, sometimes there are fireworks. That doesn't mean that God doesn't want to find us growing together and maturing together and walking together and waiting together. The next way to be stable is to consider the patience of our Lord as salvation. In other words, 
to look at the fact that Christ has not yet come back as a gift. Say, Christ isn't here today, which means that I have today to share the gospel and to pray and to grow in holiness and to get to know my brothers and sisters better. To recognize why God is restraining his hand, why God is waiting, so that he can save a people for himself, so that he could bring all of his children home. And if that's true, then that means that there's work yet to be done. Count the patience of the Lord as salvation, because that's how we were saved. That's how we were saved is because God restrained his hand. And so as we think about the Lord's return, as we wait for the Lord to come back, as we long for and yearn for and hope for that day, we ought to be be patient for it and understand, even as we're yearning for it, that if God hadn't been patient, if God hadn't restrained his hand, then none of us who are here would be here. We need to count the patience of the Lord as salvation. We also need to trust the scriptures. We need to trust the scriptures. One of the interesting things about this in, in verse 15 and 16 is that the, the Apostle Paul writes this. Uh, the Apostle Peter writes these things about the Apostle Paul. I just want to make a quick historical note. Uh, sometimes we fall prey to popular myths and speculations that would say that the New Testament is... Um, you know, it's just written by a bunch of arbitrary people, and it was just kind of collected hundreds of years after it was actually written. The Apostle Peter probably died in about A.D. 68-69, and he knew of and had read a collection of Paul's letters that was circulating amongst the churches and called it Scripture before his death, within 40 years of the death of Christ. The Apostle Peter knew of the writings of the Apostle Paul and had read them and considered them to be scripture and commended them to other Christians just as he does here. Do you understand that, that the Apostle Peter is saying you, that, that you can trust the scriptures that God has given us? You don't need to twist them. You don't need to speculate about them. But you can find in them the precious and very great promises of God, the promises that bring salvation to you and to I, the promises of God that, that, that tell us that we are his children. The, the way to have a stability, the way to have assurance in Christ, the way to, to be sure of God's love for you is to trust the scriptures, to know them and to memorize them, to, to be saturated in them, to trust them, to trust them, just like the Apostle Peter did with the Apostle Paul. Two more ways to grow in God, or to, um, to keep your stability. Two more ways. Number one, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Remember, this is Peter at the end of his life. He is about to die for his faith. And he says, grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. You'll notice that's the fifth time in this letter that the apostle Peter has used a phrase like Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He used it in chapter 1, verse 1. He used it later in chapter 1, verse 11. He used it later in chapter 2, verse 20. He uses it later in chapter 3 as well. That this is the, the fifth time that Peter has used a phrase like this. And what he's, trying to, what he's trying to tell us is that you never stop growing as a Christian. That you never stop growing in your knowledge, but not just knowledge in general, but your knowledge of Christ. 
The way to maintain your stability, the way to maintain your assurance is to never stop learning about Jesus. To never stop understanding him, to, to, to never stop knowing him, to never stop pressing deeper into him. The way to maintain your stability in Christ is to continue to grow in him, to continue to walk with him, to see him in his word anew and afresh each day, to tread the old paths and see the new fresh fruit. Christian, the the way to maintain your stability and your assurance in Christ is to continue to grow in the grace and the knowledge of him. And finally, the way to be stable is to live a life that is all for his glory. To live a life that is all for his glory. This is, after all, how Peter ends the letter. To him be the glory both now and to the day of eternity. How can you maintain your stability in Christ? How can you maintain your sense of assurance and confidence in him? Will you live a life that is centered on bringing glory to Christ? There, there is a way to, do, to say that you're doing that that would bring more glory to you than to him. There is a way that, like certain people, when they get done and they, they win the Super Bowl, they win that trophy, and they, they puff their chest out, and they, they stand in the middle of the screen, and they say, this is for the glory of God. But there's also a way to do it like John the Baptist. Or say, he must increase, and my, I must de- decrease. There's a way to live for the glory of God, which means absorbing my thoughts and my reflection in his word and giving him time and devoting and dedicating myself to him. See, there's a way to say that you're giving glory to God and really to give glory to yourself. But there's a way to give glory to God in which every day, every moment, Every task is an opportunity to say, not my will, but thine be done. To say, hallowed be thy name and not mine. To say, to you and not to me, be the glory and the power and the kingdom forever. And it's that way. It's the way of self-forgetfulness. It's the It's the way of making much of Christ and less of yourself. That's the way that brings ultimate joy, ultimate peace, and ultimate stability. Christian, Jesus told this parable, the end of the Sermon on the Mount. He said, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the wind blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Christian, when the Lord returns, when he descends from the clouds in glory, Will he say to you, well done, good and faithful servant? Will he say to you that I have found you and seen all that you've done, that, that I, I 
am so pleased with the way that you lived your life? Or will all that you have to show him will be a dirty coin you hid in the sand? Christian, life is before us. Eternity is before us. Christ could return at any minute. But the fact that he hasn't yet means that there's much to be done here on this earth. And there's much to be done before he returns. So let us be diligent, not to build on sand, but to build on rock. Let us be diligent, not to, not to be found by him lacking and wanting, hiding in the bushes. But let us be diligent to be found by him, holy and blameless and at peace. Amen. Father in heaven, we thank you that you give us the rock that we might build our lives and our house on him. We thank you that you have given us the way to live a life of stability, a life of assurance, a life of trust and faith in you. Father, we thank you that you've given us a a living hope that we can rest in and find our life in. So, Father, I pray for us now that you would help us to make much of the time that we have left. That you would help us to count your patience as salvation. To trust in your scriptures, to trust in your word. Father, I pray that you would help us to live every day, every moment, for your glory and not for ours. For your kingdom and not for ours for your name and your fame and not for ours. Father, would your son increase and would we decrease that we might find all the joy, all the satisfaction in him. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.